0: I'm speaking with Josh Sunquist. He's a Paralympic champion from Turin, Italy, and he's the author of Just Don't Fall. Thank you for joining me, Josh.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Great to be here.
0: Josh, tell us about your journey. Uh, tell, when you first learned that you were going to lose your leg, tell us how you felt at that moment and, and what took you from that day to the next, to the next week, to the next year.
1: Yeah, so I uh, found out that I was going to lose my leg when I was nine. I was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer. And at the time, I was uh, as an athlete, I was I really like to play soccer. And so the moment when I found out I was going to lose my leg was devastating because I knew there's no way I was ever going to be a soccer player. Uh, yeah, it was a huge disappointment. And I guess what... Um, as far as what got me through it, you know I think at the time it was it was really about kind of surviving the cancer. you know it was yes, obviously it's you know it' was tough that I was going to have a harder time the rest of my life but at that, at that moment it was like if the amputation is the best chance for survival, it's like of course I'd rather live you know and, and have a harder time. But as it turns out, I learned to ski while I was still on chemotherapy uh, just towards the end of my year on on treatment and I could could immediately see like, wow, like here's a sport that uh, I guess, I can do as well as anyone with two legs. And that's what really attracted me to it. Well, talk
0: about uh, the effect, not just on yourself, but on your family and your church, how, how cancer is something, isn't something is something that just happens to one person.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I always say. That, yeah, cancer is, its one person is never diagnosed with cancer. A family is diagnosed with cancer. A, a church is diagnosed with cancer. A small town is diagnosed with cancer. And, and in my case, I felt like, I, you know, I grew up in this small city in Virginia where I felt like, you know, just like the whole town and, and our church and our neighborhood really like rallied around our family and supported us in just an amazing ways in terms of taking care of my siblings and doing our housework and you know, cleaning and, and making us food. And yeah, it was just it was a really amazing, I think, um, testament to uh, the power of like small town America and to the power of organized religion at its best. Tell us uh,
0: about you know the the financial impact on your family uh, of this crisis. This is a uh, uh, these treatments aren't inexpensive. Talk uh, uh, about how you guys obtain healthcare and, and maybe some of the tension or, or some of the strain that costs on your family and on your friends and in your relationship with the community at large.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that cancer is ridiculously expensive to treat. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I was fortunate, you know, that I had good uh, good health insurance and I've always since then been confused when if, if people have the financial means as to, as to why they would choose not to get health care coverage I'm just like really like <laughs> you don't know when you could be diagnosed with cancer and have hundreds of thousands of dollars in chemotherapy bills um, but I guess so I guess the coverage then is, is generally pretty good for that what when, when we ran into troubles was like getting prosthetic limbs made where coverage is a lot more spotty. Uh, especially for someone, so my leg is amputated from the hip, which means that I need a leg that has like three artificial joints, uh, an ankle, a knee, and a hip. And that's like just way more expensive than someone who has, say, just is just missing their ankle. But a lot of times insurance companies will just say, for all prosthetic limbs, the cap is like $5,000, which is like enough to get a great foot, uh, but not so much to get a great entire leg if that's what you need. And so for me, like, you know, just the, the artificial limbs that I wore growing up, like just the the baseline, not anything fancy, kind of model, just like basic parts, is like twenty grand, uh, which is which is ridiculously expensive. But it's like really, you just you can't make it much cheaper than that. Um, so that was always kind of this a, a frustrating and ongoing uh, battle with insurance companies. To, and yeah, in fact, I actually uh, at, towards the end of high school went and um, like lobbied our state legislator to try to get the uh, the laws changed, like for the basic recovery, uh, basic. Uh, coverage in Virginia, which uh, my uh, my bill was shot down in committee. But uh, <laughs> my it was, it was actually funny. My insurance company still like upped their coverage. And my dad called them I was like, so I saw that you guys made better coverage for prosthetics. Why is this? And they're like, oh, we saw there was like this pending bill in the legislature. We decided to just improve the coverage. I was like, all right. I <laughs> guess it worked after all. <laughs> you know, it strikes me that
0: one of the side effects of this is that you grew up awful fast, and learned, I think, to take uh, responsibility for your life in a way that you might not have otherwise had to.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. You know, just just the simple fact of facing your mortality at a young age, I think, is a big thing because you know, when you're nine years old, normally you you think you're going to live forever, right? It's like uh, you're going to you're going to be eighty, and then eighty years is is forever. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I have cancer, I have a 50% chance to live. And yeah, I think that that really forces you to, uh, I guess, for one thing, you know, consider what what do you believe spiritually, but also what do you believe just in a very... Um, Experiential sense, like what what is life about, and 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 as I got older, I think more so than than people my age, than teenagers, for example, you know, because for me, I I guess I was I was in a a situation always where I felt like, man, like I almost died, and and I have this sort of second chance at life, and I need to you know live it to the fullest or whatever, and I tend to get sort of I think fanatical about making sure I'm doing a great job living or whatever, to the point that I'm so concerned with living well that I. don't even actually have time to live, you know? I don't know. It's happened to me sometimes. <laughs> Could you talk uh, about the the process
0: of becoming an a athlete? That's got to be more challenging than any other thing that you can have imagined, really.
1: Yeah, you know, it was um, – yeah, I guess so. You know, I never skied before I lost my leg. So people were always like, oh, is it hard to ski with one leg? I am i don't know. Or like, it <laughs> wasn't too hard for me. Uh, so skiing is, with one leg is – Requires, I guess, more balance than with two legs, obviously. But the mechanics of how you ski on one ski are exactly the same as two skis. And so, like when I was racing, you know, I could go to any, you know, any ski racing camp or whatever, and any like coach could coach me. And it's a little different. You know, I had to tell them like one or two things, but generally, it's like the same thing they would tell to an able-bodied athlete are the things they tell to me, like keeping your weight forward, pushing your weight on the front of your ski balanced shoulders, things like that are the same, whether you have two legs or one leg. So yeah, I think there's there's parts of it that are harder, but a lot of parts that are uh, that are the same for any athlete. You know, you, you struggle with um, funding your training and you struggle with uh, getting through injuries and frustrations and the highs and lows of good races and bad races.
0: You decided to, to write your story. Could you talk about making that decision to become a writer that's not necessarily follows from, from being a, an athlete, even a champion athlete?
1: Yeah, I guess not. I've always sort of been, or like to imagine myself as a writer. I when even, yeah, way before I even got cancer, when I was like six years old, I used to write this thing called kids newspaper on a, like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper where I'd, I'd write out, like make up a crossword puzzle and like write some news from my family, like, Oh, we're going out to eat tonight, or whatever. And then I would, I would take it to Kinko's and I'd make like eighteen copies. I don't know why eighteen, but I remember in my mind that was the, that was the num, that was my circulation. And uh, and I would sell a copy to my dad and my mom. And then I would file the rest away in this filing cabinet that I had. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I've always been sort of a writer. And then when I had cancer, I started writing things even then about my experiences. I, I was doing like, I did like essay contests when I was little, which. Uh, I would always win because <laughs> looking back, it's like, it's almost, it's almost unfair. I I did like this essay contest of like, what I did this summer at Walmart. And it was like, the other kids are like, I learned how to swim. I went to camp. And I'm like, man... I had cancer, I almost died, and then I I lost my leg. It was just like, really? Yeah, how was anyone else going to compete with that? So I guess I grew up then expressing myself and and working through the emotions of my situation, I think, on the written page. And as I got older, it was, I don't know, almost sort of a natural progression in my mind that, like, of course I would want to try and share my story in a book once I had the, uh, I guess, the writing ability to do so.
0: Now, it's one thing to become an athlete and to, you know, ski. It's another thing to decide to compete. Could you talk about entering the competition and the Paralympics? It's not the Olympics. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, that's a great
1: question. Uh, Yeah, you're right. I was was a recreational skier for a number of years. You know, I learned how to ski when I had cancer when I was 10. I didn't start ski racing seriously until I was 16. And that was more just because I, d- I wasn't really sure how to get into the sport. I was aware of it and I knew that I wanted to go to the Paralympics someday, but I just didn't know how to get started. And I just happened to get a brochure one time in the mail that was like a list of disabled ski races in the United States. And I just I literally just called one of the race organizers. And I was like, hey, I have one leg i'd like to become a ski racer i'd like to go to the paralympics you know what do i do and he happened to uh, be a coach of the winter park disabled ski team named paul DeBello, and he was like well come out to to my race program over christmas break so i went out there and and it turns out that's one like the premier disabled training facilities for ski racing in the world and there's just there's just racers there from all over the world literally you know and, and people with all sorts of disabilities um one leg or one arm or no legs or paraplegics or blind skiers whatever and I was just immediately um, just sort of entranced by this this elite level of competition of people who physically looked like me and uh, and so I, yeah that's I just right after that I was like man this is this is what I want to do is, is be a part of this
0: now talk about the actual writing of the book um, when you decided to to write a book about, you know, your life, how did, you know, you approach, you know, some of the per, you know, you're revealing a lot of very personal things, you know, stuff about your family, about, you know, your mother and your father.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: could you talk about writing those kind of personal things?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I've never been a a particularly private person and I think that's not just about me, that's also sort of something about my generation. You know that I'm 25, and so I'm used to putting things on Facebook, uh, you know, about my life and, and having pictures on Facebook. Whereas, you know, a lot of people in like my parents' generation, they're like, "Whoa, you know, I don't, I don't want a Facebook profile. I don't want people to see my picture online. Like, if someone could see my picture, then they can probably steal my identity just by looking at it." You know, and so I think part of it's just to me, it's like, uh, uh, you know, it's it's like I guess this is kind of the way that I I look at it is that. I think we all want to look at our lives and think that the events of our lives weren't this random collection of stuff that happened. We want to, like, look at it and see a pattern of meaning. And to me, like, what more uh, meaningful thing could there be than to take the random or crazy events of your life and and put them on paper and then have other people find meaning in relating those stories to their own life? And so to me, it's really just... uh, a tremendously um, satisfying experience to be able to share something personal on the page and then ultimately find out later that someone else connected with it so I guess the only harder part about that situation then is yeah stuff about my family Whereas so it's like it's easy for me to go and say like oh here's this really personal thing that happened to me but it's a little different when I'm like going to my brother I'm like hey I am getting paid to write about your life so hope you're okay with that Um, and he always gives me a hard time about that that I've sold his life story or something like that in my book (laughs) um but yeah my family were all i mean you know I, i i talked to them all and like you know had them read drafts of the book and make sure they were like kind of comfortable with everything um but uh, and they were and and that's good you know you don't you, when you're writing a memoir you want them to be good sports because a you're trying to preserve your family relationships presumably above book sales like you you want to stay on the speaking terms with everyone and b you don't want to be in one of the situations where the book comes out and then everyone in your family is like yeah it's all made up that didn't happen you know <laughs> so uh, I, I went went through with my family I was like this happened right like this is this is how I remember it. Is this kind of how you remember it um, so uh, yeah it was um, it was nice that my family was willing to let me reveal some of the kind of personal family history that I did. Could you talked about Facebook
0: and and be life online? You founded lessthan dot org. Talk about creating this uh, huge, you know, online amputee community. That's a that's a significant accomplishment in and of itself.
1: Yeah, it's been a cool thing. It's I guess it started because you know I just I've had this website for a long time to promote my speaking like my joshsunquist.com and because of that amputees would find me and and ask me questions or people more often it would be like friends of neighbors of friends of someone who lost a limb recently who was just kind of looking for resources online they would just be like man do you have any advice or whatever and and I, I was just always kind of looking for some where to point those people online, like here's here's a great website for you, you should check this out, and I just couldn't find anything that was exactly what I was looking for, so I, I just sort of created it myself, because what I wanted was not just a clearinghouse of information, because there's lots of websites like that, but I wanted a place for amputees to be able to connect with other amputees because to me that was what really helped me a lot when I lost my leg was to look at older amputees and you know adults or people in their 20s and say oh you know what this person has one leg but look they're a normal functioning human being and I can be like that too and I think that's that was it worked out well for me but you know sometimes there's people in small towns in like the midwest and there's just no amputees near them and that's the great thing about technology is it allows that person to connect with another amputee in New York and an amputee in Germany and people all over the world and and realize that they're part of a a community of amputees that are people who have uh, similar disabilities to themselves and are functioning well in their lives. Uh, Talk about
0: what exactly can they find there? Uh,
1: Well, yeah, so I mean the the biggest thing to me is is community, uh, which loosely... sort of a loosely defined term um i guess yeah i i think that it's it's the idea that people can connect with other people it's you know when i made the site it was like before facebook blew up uh so now it's it's i feel like it's eventually will become probably superfluous um or or it's or less valuable than than it is now because more and more people are on facebook uh and, and they have that 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 you know, they can sort of connect with people through there. But when I made the site, there just wasn't, social networking wasn't as big as it is now. So it was just, I think, a unique thing for people to be able to come on and like friend other amputees. You know, it's just it's just like, works like MySpace or Facebook. You friend other amputees, you can upload your photos, you can comment on other people's photos. And probably the, I guess the, the biggest thing about the site, or, or maybe the main feature of it, is that people blog. And so, you know, you have this site where there's just hundreds of active bloggers who are writing about their experiences as amputees. And so you can come onto the site, even if you're not an amputee and you don't want to, like, or, or you are an amputee, but you don't want to, like, make a profile or meet other amputees. You can just read these blogs of other people who are, you know, going through things right now. Like, they just lost their limb or they're just getting their first prosthesis, and, and, and presumably you will relate to their experiences.
0: Could you talk about some of your experiences um, before this? You said that you looked at adult amputees. Talk yeah. about your your experiences as a kid, looking out there and trying to figure out what you were going to do and who you were going to be.
1: You mean as far as just meeting other amputees? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, there was yeah there were several amputees that really yeah made a big impact on me. Uh, the only sort of famous one being a guy named Dave Jurevici. You remember Dave Jurevici? Some people. Uh, he was he was real famous in like the mid '90s. He was a pitcher, uh, major league pitcher, and he lost his. Well, first he lost his deltoid muscle to cancer in his shoulder, and then he eventually lost his whole arm. And he wrote a book about it uh, called Comeback. And he so he was he's sort of always been a a, a well known guy in the amputee community. And when it, when I found out I was gonna lose my leg, I read his book. And then I don't know. I guess somebody told me about him, and he called me one day at my house. And I had just read his book, so it was just, like, amazing. I was like, I can't believe this this guy's calling me. And he was speaking nearby one time, so I actually, like, went and met him. And it was just so cool to see, like, here is, like I said, you know, I don't know. You just think when you're about to lose a leg, you're just like, man, like, how will I function in society? Like, can I have a job? Like, just stuff that sounds stupid to me now. But, like, how will I drive a car? Like, how will I meet people? How will I get through airport security? And just to, like, meet someone else who's, like, obviously figured all that out, you're like, oh, well, I guess maybe maybe you can function like a normal person, even though you have one leg.
0: One of the things I I have to say is that
1: you have a great projecting kind of personality.
0: Uh, Do do you talk about... being seeing yourself as a motivational speaker and motivating yourself to motivate other people.
1: It's <laughs> a great question I, I like your impression of my voice. So I read the audiobook of my my book and uh yeah the audiobook people they they just hated me. They're like dude, you like you cuz I guess I'm I'm used to being like you know when I'm telling those stories I'm used to being on stage and like hitting certain words really hard in a really staccato way and like emphasizing certain things. And they're like dude, you're you're just re- you're over the top. Like you got to like rein it in a little bit, like just be a little bit more boring if you could so uh yeah it's just sort of a habit from uh from being on stage because i especially you know it's funny you can to me like so i've uh i've, I've seen a lot of motivational speakers um and people don't realize how it's, it's really an industry like we have a trade association called the professional speakers association so i know like most of the speakers out there and i've seen most of them and you can always see kind of where they got their start and specifically you can identify speakers who started speaking in public schools which is what I did because they tend to be just way more animated on stage because a public school audience is so hard to hold and so I think that because I got started speaking in in these like middle schools and high schools you know when I was young when I was in like high school I sort of developed the habit of like that you just had to be really energetic and all over the place vocally in terms of your tonality and your pitch and your your speed and, and that sort of has become a habit, I think, that's transferred into all of my life. And my, my friends always make fun of me for my uh, hand gestures. I'm always, like, knocking things over at the dinner table and stuff. <laughs> uh, but as far as the actual, yeah, motivating yourself to motivate audiences, that's a, an interesting question. I guess, yeah, um, yeah you know, I'm always, I think to me it's important as a motivational speaker to be passionate about being on the platform because I think that if you and if you are enjoying yourself on stage and enjoying your time up there, then people will sense that and they will enjoy what you're doing more. So it's always important to me that I'm, I'm not – that my material is fresh and that I'm not, like, speaking so much that I'm going to burn myself out because I think that, you know, there's a lot of jobs that you can be sort of burnt out on and bitter about and still be good at it, for example – I don't know, like law, like right. Everybody says, Oh, lawyers all hate their jobs, but they just you know, they're making the money and they just they went through law school and they just keep doing it. Uh and but you could still be a great lawyer and, and hate doing it, right? But if you're if you hate being a motivational speaker, you're not gonna be a good motivational speaker. Like you just it's just not gonna work. So I think it's important to stay passionate about the job and just to stay psychologically healthy. Like I'll go on like walks a lot and I'm like, Yeah, this is like part of my job because it's like Helping me be psychologically healthy going on a walk this is this is a, i should be I'm pretty much getting paid for this right now.
0: Talk about being in high school and as a and being a motivational speaker that seems really uh, I mean it seems tough.
1: Yeah. It yeah, it was. It didn't go so well either. I, uh, yeah, I, I my first couple of speeches were horrendous. Like my first, my first real speech was at a middle school and I had two speeches scheduled back to back in the morning. And after the first one, the principal came up to me and was like, Hey, um, we had some scheduling difficulties, and we canceled your second speech. <laughs> uh, and in uh, and, and retrospect, I don't blame him. My, my speech was awful. Like, the, the theme of my speech was that you should set goals for your life because you might die in the next 24 hours, which is, like, it just doesn't, A, it doesn't even make sense. But, B, it's, like, really, that's what you're going to tell, like, sixth graders? We're talking about, like, 11-year-old kids? Like, you might die in a car wreck, so you should set goals. Uh, so yeah, it was really, yeah, I just, I wasn't good for a long time. And it was tough being in high school. What was really tough being in high school was speaking to other high schoolers. And I've, I've realized that as I've gotten older, like it's, it works better if I'm speaking to people who are like three years younger than me. So when I was in, uh, when I was in college, it worked really well to speak to high schoolers. I still am pretty good at that, but I'm now just getting to the age at age 25 where I'm pretty good at speaking to college students too, um, because It's like you want to be at people's close enough to their age that they feel like they can relate to you and you can speak their language, but just old enough that they look up to you a little and that you aren't intimidated by them. It's tough speaking sometimes to your peers because they're your peers and you feel like, man, what, like, why am I up on stage? Why aren't you up on stage? We're like, you know, we're peers. We're the same people. So, um, yeah, it's been an interesting process of of being young and being on stage. Uh, But, you know, I'm getting there.
0: What are you working on now? Are you working on another book or are you working on do you have videos or
1: Yeah, I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I always have crazy projects that I'm working on. Uh, yeah, so I've been working on bringing this book to market and you know, just getting all the promotional stuff ready and I don't know, just working on my website and whatnot for the last few months. And so now this yeah, this book just came out like a week ago. So right now I'm on tour, of course. And I guess, well, yeah, what I want to do is write more books. That's I, I just love books. I think they're just the coolest thing ever. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm already addicted to the the feeling of walking into a bookstore and seeing my book on the shelf. That's just the coolest thing. So I would like to continue to do that. Uh, as to, yeah, I have a couple of things I've sort of started working on, writing projects, but as to what I will p- pursue, I want to kind of see, I guess, who my readership is for this book and, you know, who kind of connects with it and, and how I can... Um, how I can best follow up this book so yeah I'll keep doing that I'll keep, of course I'll keep doing my speaking and um, yeah and I've been sort of dabbling in uh, making videos for YouTube recently and so I've been thinking about trying to expand my YouTube presence as well so those are kind of my, my plans for the immediate future I've been speaking with Josh Sunquist. his
0: new book is Just Don't Fall thank you for joining me Josh absolutely it was a pleasure to be here